Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I'm sex educator and sexual communication coach, Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. About a year ago, I read an essay on Shondaland called Why I Married My Platonic Best Friend about two women who realized that they were soulmates, even though they didn't share a sexual relationship. I was so taken with that piece that I bookmarked it, I started sending it to people, I referred clients to it as an explanation of the validity of non-normative relationships. A few months ago, I discovered that I was in a Facebook group with Deidre Olson, the author of that essay. I reached out to her and asked if she would please, please, please do an interview. She very graciously said yes, and even said that she'd do it with her real name so I could link you out to all of her writing. I'm thrilled to have her with me on this episode. Deidre and I cover a lot of territory, including dating with herpes, an extensive history of sexual assault, and navigating relationships with borderline personality disorder. It's some challenging territory, so please take care of yourself. Deidre is really open about everything she's experienced, and I think that if you choose to listen, you'll get a lot out of it. Deidre is a 31-year-old non-binary person who uses both she and they pronouns and doesn't have a preference for either one. Deidre describes herself as white, lesbian, monogamous, and partnered. She grew up in Canada and now lives in Germany. She describes her body as average. You can find Deidre on Instagram, Twitter, and at her website, and I'll put all those links plus links to her articles and some other resources in the show notes. I'm so pleased to introduce Deidre. Deidre, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I always start with the same question. What is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Um. So... I was very hypersexual as a child. I started masturbating when I was 12 years old, and I knew what sex was because I am a survivor of early childhood sexual violence, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. The impacts of that made me very hypersexual since childhood, and I my earliest memory is um, masturbating at age 12. Okay. And, and, and understanding the sensation of sexual pleasure for the first time. 
Yeah. So when you say you are hypersexual, different people might use that word to mean different things. Can you talk about what that means to you? For me, hypersexual is hyper-focusing on sex as a form of validation, mm. um, as a form of, of intimacy to affirm myself, to feel wanted, to feel connected. Because I had my agency and autonomy stolen from me at a young age, it was the only way I could feel like somebody wanted or desired me. Mm. And so rather than because I couldn't get it necessarily in a romantic sense, I um, looked to sex as a form of validation. And so I would say I was hypersexual because I would go directly to that because I just assumed that no one wanted me in a romantic sense. And so the easiest thing for me was just to have a lot of sex Yeah, from my teenage years. Yeah. So how old were you when the early abuse began? Three years old. Okay. So very, very young. Yeah. Do you have some sense that between those years of like three and 12, when the masturbation began, that you were already really focused on sex and sexuality? Um, I would say that I, um, I mean, the, fir the first time it happened, sadly, it was my 17-year-old babysitter who was a girl mm. um, and who was, uh, came from an evangelical Christian family in a very small town in northern British Columbia, uh, western Canadian province. Um, and then I think that was, my, that was my first sexual experience. And um, all I remember is uh, police, lawyers, and uh, oh, doctors God. because my mother pursued justice and sadly uh, justice did not prevail. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was actually molested by two male cousins, oh. one of which is only a couple months older and one whose brother is three years older. So... I was molested by other children, and then that cemented their, what happened to me when I was younger. But the molestation by my cousin, it was very much like I would think I was, I think I was nine, and uh, it was truth or dare. And so that was kind of where I had more of an understanding of the sexual component. Before it was just like something that happened to me, and I didn't understand. But when another kid did it to me, it made me get a better understanding of what sex was as a concept. And also, of course, I was a bit older. So then I think it was kind of in the back of my mind until I discovered masturbation at age 12. So I would say from like nine to 12 is when the conception of sex really played more of a role in my head. Sure, sure. Um, I have a couple more questions about this period. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. All right. And please feel free to tell me if we're getting into areas that are too tender. You said that when you were three, there were lawyers and all this stuff involved, which says to me, you had to have enough language and um, self-possession to say something to somebody. Do you remember any of that? Um, a little bit, yes. It's actually, unfortunately, my earliest memory of mm. my life. Um, I just remember being in pain and my mom was horrified because she gave me a bath and I didn't want to let her see my vagina. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what's wrong, honey? And I, and I said something along the lines of she wrecked me. 
she put something inside me and she humped me. So I don't, I don't remember saying that. I actually have um, police records that say what I said to my mother and what she told the police I said. But my memory is of my mo- the horror on my mother's face and the sinking feeling knowing that something was wrong, even though I didn't understand, and also the feeling of pain. Mm, yeah. Was there any sense from your mom? Like, I just heard you use the words, she wrecked me, which is yeah. a, a pretty big sentiment for such a little child. How did your mom handle all this? She was horrified. She also is a victim of sexual violence. So I know that this is re-traumatizing for her because she had an uncle who raped her when she was 11 years old. It was compounded her grief because she didn't want her child to grow up with the same pain that she had. And uh, she I don't think she ever would have assumed that a teenage girl would have been the perpetrator. Like usually it's, uh, you know, a boy or a man. Um, so I, I think it's a lot more rare that a, a teenage girl sexually assaults a toddler. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, it was very, very devastating for my mother because my dad, at the time, they were living in a really rural place. They had moved to the middle of nowhere because they wanted to um, save a lot of money. So it's, it was very isolated. She had no family there. And my dad was working long hours. And I think she was pregnant when this happened with my sister and she had my I was three my brother was one and she was pregnant with my sister oh my god that's a lot and um actually my dad was investigated as a perpetrator so he couldn't actually be a part of the process so she literally was going through hell alone wow so he was investigated even though you had it sounds like you had identified the female babysitter yeah yeah Yeah. I guess it's uh they because it's oftentimes, uh, you know, a male figure in a kid's life. So mm-hmm. it was just, I guess they said that it was their due diligence. Sure, sure. Oh, what an awful thing for your family to go through. I'm so <laughs> sorry. Thank you. Did that change your family dynamics at all? I mean, I think it's a pretty horrible thing. Um to have happen, especially when you're like, it's a new family, right? Yeah. I mean, I was only three years old. I can, I can, I'm actually the age now that my mom was when she had me. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess she was 34. And I, I mean, I can't personally imagine in three years having a little kid and especially just being so far away from your parents and your family and being in isolation. And I, I can't, the the strength that she had to endure such a travesty is is incredible to me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then we move forward to when you're nine years old. At this point, when the violation happened at nine, it sounds like you had an idea that something was going on that was actually a violation. Like, it sounds like you had some concept of what that meant. Do you remember what was happening inside your head at the time? Yeah. So by this point, we had moved back down south and my parents had finally been able to buy a house. So for me, moving to this new town, um, and it's where my parents have lived for like 25 years now, um, it was like the the feeling of a new beginning. And I, I kind of just, I, I knew something bad had happened in the back of my mind, but I just didn't understand what it was. It was like this darkness that you don't understand, but it's always with you. And it made me feel like there was something different about me and maybe something innately wrong with me that caused bad things to happen to me, even though I didn't understand what it was. 
So I we pretty pretty quickly after moving to this town and my parents bought a house and it was like, you know, finally this darkness was gone. And um, we started hanging out with my cousins. And I've often wondered maybe if somebody was sexually assaulting them because I know that kids imitate. And um, I don't know what happened. I've scoured my mind for reasons. You know, I thought, I don't know, do they are they addicted to porn or something like that? But, you know, the, there wasn't high, really high-speed internet at the time. This, I mean, this was what, like, maybe I was even younger. This, this must have been the late 90s. I might have actually been younger than nine. Because I don't think it was the year 2000. I think this was more like 1998, 1999. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't even know how it started happening. I have a very distinct memory of my grandparents' house and all the parents were upstairs and me and my cousins were downstairs in a back bedroom. And yeah, they were asking me to to play tooth or dare with them and do sexually explicit things. Mm. And that just, um, that just compounded that there was something wrong that I thought, I thought there was something inherently wrong with me. This just cemented that kind of foreboding I had in the back of my mind. Yeah. God, I'm so sorry. That is Thank so you. much for one child to go through. Um, do you remember how you discovered masturbation? And I mean, beyond just the the sort of technical parts of, <laughs> of how you did it, was it something that was pleasurable for you? I think so. I mean, I think I had a hyper awareness of my body because I had this feeling of having my agency stolen from me. I I, I also um, had a really severe childhood depression. And um, I was very, um, I'm actually writing a memoir about this topic. I was very self-destructive and self-repulsed and had very bad self-neglect from an early age. Um, and there was very little to no inter- intervention. It was more so kind of swept under the rug that I was a weird kid and I was just behaving erratically. But I had like very, very, very bad hygiene. I had a lot of like very self-destructive behaviors as a child. And so having had my cousins put these conceptions of sex into my head to see body parts as, as sexual objects. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I, th- I think I kind of self-objectified. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I began, began seeing myself as being someone that has something inherently wrong with them. I also started to see myself as a sexual object. And I think from there, I began exploring my body. Yeah. And uh, I think that led to masturbation. Yeah. So... I am not a psychologist, so I don't want anyone to hear this and think, oh, this is how exactly how this goes. But there is a concept here that some people may not be familiar with, which is that when sexuality is introduced to a child before they are developmentally ready for it, so three years old, definitely before you're developmentally ready for it, that sexualizes a child before they're ready. And that can create this sense of hyper focus on your body, hyper focus on sort of how you appear in the world and how people respond to you and respond to your body and in things that we generally think develop in your tween or your young teen years can develop in children as young as three or four, if they have been sexualized before they're ready. Mm. Um, And yeah, it's, and I think that 
from the outside, when people see that and they don't understand what they're seeing, it can lead to them thinking, oh, well, there's something wrong with this child. Like, putting some shame onto the child as in, I don't want my kids near you because, oh my God, you're, what are you going to do? When in Mm. fact, that child is actually probably in a whole lot of pain. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you started exploring your own body and masturbating. What kind of masturbation did you do? Do you remember? Um, I think honestly, it was just, um, clitoral stimulation, and then probably some penetrative exploration as well. Mm -hmm. So with your fingers. Yeah. 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 Objects, objects, also the bathtub Mm -hmm. uh, stream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The bathtub, bathtub faucet is a big one. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was fun for you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And did you relate that to the idea of being with another person sexually? Or was this just something that you wanted for yourself? I don't know. I think it was more, um, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I think it was more of an objectification of self. I didn't realize I was a lesbian until I was 18. So I, all of my relatedness to another person's body was through sexual assault. And so I think that I actually looked for experiences that mirrored that experience Mm -hmm. that that is what I thought sex was I thought that I thought that I was I thought that because I was feminine I was a straight woman a straight girl and um I dated boys and I thought that I just had to lay there and take it and I thought that my self-worth was quantified by how much attention boys paid to me yeah I was sexually assaulted many, many times as a teenage girl. Oh my God. And I, you know, and I really only until recently have I actually been able to look at it as sexual assault because I also think that like, I mean, I was a teenager in the 2000s and I actually didn't even understand the concept of consent until well into my Mm -hmm. 20s. I had, I had no concept that I had any bodily autonomy because I was so used to having it robbed from me that I just thought, I just lay there like a pillow princess, give them what they want. And that's how I can be loved. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point did you, how old were you when you started dating boys? Um, I think 15. 15 mm-hmm. is when I lost my virginity. So I had a couple like quick boyfriends and then had a lot of uh, random sex. And then mm-hmm. I had one boyfriend for a year. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. So was any of that sex that you were having pleasurable or was it entirely just laying back and waiting for it to be over? When I had my high school boyfriend, it was experimentation. So I think at one point I like found an angle that I liked that like, that like elicited some um, enjoyment, but mostly I thought that there was also something wrong with me because I was like, why don't I like this? Like this, um, it's because I was gay. Um, (laughs) Penises didn't do much for you. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Um, Yeah, no, a lot of the time I was very, very repulsed and I, I tried it anyways. And I thought, you know, I also believed a lot of these harmful myths that like, I don't know that I, that female sexual pleasure was a myth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
yeah, that, that I just lay there, I take it, I do my job and, uh, hopefully, hopefully a boy will love me in return. Yeah. Were you using protection? Uh, sometimes. Um, but I always got manipulated into allowing boys to use the pull out method. I used birth control for a short while until my mother found it. And she told my boyfriend, uh, she told my boyfriend's dad and he was an evangelical Christian. Uh, He, he freaked out at my high school boyfriend who freaked out at me. Of course, then it was my fault because I was a whore. Mm So, and then also I found that it really, really affected me psychologically. Hormonal stuff really, um, affects me. So I ended up just stopping the, because there was so much anger at me. I was like, okay, we can just go back to the pull-up method because I'm a whore and I'll just give you what you want. Yeah. Yeah. And that willingness to be talked out of birth control or protection is very much a hallmark of that sort of feeling broken and feeling like you just have to, give up whatever you have, because that's all you're worth. Yeah, exactly. So you've said a couple of times that you were around 18 when you discovered that you were gay. Can you talk about that? What was what was the discovery? What prompted that for you? It's funny, because um, I have a very specific moment, I was doing a yearbook class. And it was towards the end, it was my last year of high school. And uh, a girl's arm brushed against mine and I got this sensation that I had never had before. I was like, oh, what was that? And um, (laughs) it was like butterflies all, you know, like it was like, it just triggered this feeling in me that I had never felt before. And um, I probably spent two years fantasizing about that moment and um, returning to it. And um, at first it was like, oh, no. It couldn't it couldn't possibly be I don't I don't like girls no 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 and then I was like oh what if I did that would be weird yeah eventually eventually I was fantasizing about dancing with a woman the the song in particular was cat powers the moon and it was uh-huh. under a silver disco ball uh, <laughs> I had this recurring fantasy but actually recently I was um just in Canada not long ago visiting my family for a couple months and um, my mom wanted me, she she's wants me to get all of my shit out of the attic that I have mm-hmm. left there from all over the years. And um, so I was going through some stuff and I found this um, old diary and it only had a couple pages in it, but I found this page and it I wrote it on the eve of my 13th birthday in 2004, February 24th, 2004. It was called Confessions. And I confessed all of the ways that I thought that I had sinned. And it was a really, really upsetting thing to find and also really remarkable, especially for the sake of my book. But I wrote about going to a girl's birthday party because I remember that I I didn't have many, many friends and I got invited to this girl's birthday party. And uh, I can't make out one part of it, but I'm saying, I think I'm lesbo. Oh my God, ew. And I was shocked oh, wow. to find this. I was yeah. shocked because I have no recollection of knowing I'm gay, but I did when I was 12 years old, I did know I was gay. And I also in this thing, I found written proof that my cousin molested me. I have to find exactly what it said. Oh, can I pull it out? Because it's, yes. it's, it's really, 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 honestly, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, let me see if I can find it. I'll just take a second. Okay, I found it. Can yeah. I can I read it to you? Please do. 
Okay, yes. So February 24th, confessions. I have done so much bad stuff in my life. One thing is just, wow, it's disgusting, but I was little and yeah, me and my cousin French kissed. I guess I was too adventurous. I hope I don't get like too adventurous in high school. I get so weird something girls and I think I'm lesbo sometimes. Haha, <laughs> oh my god, ew. At Justine's B-Day party, I went skinny dipping. I've cybered people. OMG, I'm a freak! Exclamation mark. I've tried stuffing my bra and bought a thong. I wore makeup to school without asking. I wrote bitch on the chalkboard at school. I've had a boyfriend. I've made out a few years ago. I looked at porn on the internet. I've threatened my brother and sister and hit them. I stole money and candy from Safeway and from Holly and even more than this. Wow. So I wrote that when I was... 12 years old and I I was just shocked to have found this because yeah. I I literally thought I was a sinner and it and it's literally called confessions. It was like I was I'm 12 years old and I'm confessing my sins. Yeah, which is particularly remarkable to me because before we started recording, I asked you, was there a religion that had a significant effect on you and you said, "No." But it's so much in the air that we breathe that you still have this idea that you have to confess your sins and that even these tiny little things somehow speak to your general character and worthiness as a human. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I might have watched that movie 13. Uh-huh. That movie came out when I was 12 years old. So I think maybe that's why also. That's a lot for a, a young woman to be holding. Mm-hmm. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing. There is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. 
You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. You're 12 years old and you realize you have this inkling that you might be a lesbian, but then you sort of put that away for a bunch of years. It pops up again at 18. And you said that you had a couple of years where you were sort of pushing that knowledge away. Were you still dating and sleeping with boys at that point? Or did that stop while you were trying to figure out your orientation? So I had this high school boyfriend, which I think I dated from 16 to 17. We broke up because he was homophobic and extremely Christian. And I'm, I have been a lifelong atheist. Then I thought I might be bisexual. And so I still dated boys. But then I had a couple threesomes in that time that were... So when you were still in high school? One when I was in high school and one when I was out of high school, both of wow. which were two of the worst sexual experiences I've ever had in my life. Hmm. The first one was when I was a teenager and an older boy and then a there was another girl and she, we were both vying for his attention. So he was like, mm. I can have sex with you both. So then he did. And it like, wasn't even really a threesome. He was basically just him fucking each of us individually. Yeah. So there was no attraction or interaction between the two of you. No, no. Mm -hmm. And uh, she ended up getting upset and crying and leaving. And then he was like, Oh, good. You're the one I wanted anyways. And I, and then I thought that was good. I was like, Oh, I'm yeah. being chosen. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and then yeah. the, the second time was with the pretty well-known DJ, not super famous, but pretty well-known. And um, it was also a similar thing. I had gone out with a friend. I was probably 19, 20, and we had done MDMA. And um, she was like, do you want to go have a threesome with this DJ? And I was like, sure, why not? I'm high on MDMA. I'll do anything. <laughs> and then we went and uh, it was also the same thing. It was the worst sex I've ever had. It was so bad. And he just like laid in the middle and kissed one and then kissed the other. And then my friend left me there alone with this guy, even though she oh. brought me there. She fucking left me alone. And then he wanted to have sex with me. And then it was weird. And then, yeah. Yeah. So no fun. And it sounds like no interaction with the women who you exactly. might actually have enjoyed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So at what point did you actually start engaging with other women by choice as opposed to by circumstance? There was one boy in particular I really, really liked, I think when I was 20. Um, and then it didn't go well. And then I was like, you know what, I, I'm tired of this. This, this is disappointing. I'm just going to try and date girls. A friend of a friend was a lesbian. And uh, my friend was like, oh, you guys should meet. You're both gay. Like, you both like girls. Like, maybe you will get along. So a friend had a party in my hometown, and we were both invited. And um, I did a lot of MDMA to the point where I was blacking out. Mm. I might have done four or five capsules of MDMA that night. And um, I ended up hooking up with her in the back of a car while a guy watched. Mm. it's not a nice memory 
I was just really, really high on drugs and yeah. thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that experience was primarily for the benefit of the guy who was watching or were you were you wanting to do this with this woman? Like how much of this was for you and how much was for him? Uh, hard to say. Honestly, I was not in a frame of mind to be doing that. We were all too, too high to be doing that. And yeah. uh, we wanted to hook up, but I don't know. I think he was just like, you guys can go in my car and I'll watch. And I, and I don't know why, for some reason, I didn't care just because I was so high. It didn't matter. Yeah, sure. I wanted to hook up with her, but certainly not under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to keep going forward in your timeline, but I also want to pick up one other thing, which is that through all of this, this most recent piece that you published was about having herpes from a very young age. So I'd like to ask you about how that affected your growth and development as a sexual being, as someone who knows that people are going to look at you and determine whether they're attracted to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had it since I was as far as I can remember, and I got really bad outbreaks as a child. I would have like five or six on both lips, and it would be to the point where my lips were fat. And I would go to school and girls called me AIDS face. But I was also just like so traumatized and so depressed. And everything in my life was so terrible in terms of my hygiene, my bedroom, that this was just like one manifestation of chaos. But it wasn't the only one mm. because like I had really bad dental decay, my bedroom, there was like rotting food in my bedroom. Like it was just, it was really bad when I was a teenager. And for some reason, it didn't really, it doesn't seem to have really affected me as a teenager. I don't know why, because I didn't get as bad of outbreaks. And I think because I had had it for so long, I didn't care as mm -hmm. much. And also, I think that I just told myself, I didn't realize it was herpes either. I didn't know that. I just, I, I had this euphemism of cold sores and mm -hmm. I knew that other people get them, you know, sometimes teachers got them. So I think I also just didn't fully understand when people said mean things to me as a kid, I didn't fully understand the context of the stigma because I didn't know that it was herpes. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned that later on and, um, I don't know. It's more so like I would, it wasn't the thing itself. It was more so that I felt so ugly and disgusting that I wanted to hide. Mm -hmm. I do know that a lot of the time I was at home fussing over it and I was crying and I didn't want anyone to see me and I felt disgusting. But with that said, I felt disgusting, not only about that. So, mm -hmm. you know, I smell, I, I mean, I, I remember kids telling me I smelled bad. I remember one boy telling me that I had yellow teeth and like that my breath smelled. So I think because I had other things going on, I think that's very true because I had other things going on. I think it lessened the blow. Mm -hmm. And I never had, I don't know, maybe I was really cute. So maybe that helped. <laughs> I, I, it didn't, it didn't stop me from, um, Ha having boys were always interested in me. Okay. I, I had uh, platinum blonde hair and 
I was very shapely and very feminine. And and I think when I turned like 15, I started taking better care of myself, even though there was still a lot going on at home, I became better at appearances. And before mm-hmm. I would just let all the ugliness out. And then I just wouldn't do anything sexually with anyone when I had a breakout. That was one of my questions. Yeah. If, if you were aware enough, was it because it was uncomfortable or because you were aware that you could potentially pass something on? Yeah, I knew that it was contagious. And, um, and also, I just felt gross. So it, it, it I, I don't want to kiss somebody if I have an open sore on my face, like it just that doesn't feel nice. So yeah, I knew that it was contagious, because I knew I had gotten it from my mom. And so I didn't want to give it to somebody else. So I usually didn't tell somebody that I had it until I had a breakout mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And then I would be like, okay, I have to wait for this to go away. I can't kiss you for two weeks or do anything sexual. Mm-hmm. And has it always remained in your face or have you had migration to your genitals? Just my face. Uh-huh. And what kind of protocol are you on now, if any, to manage it? You know, it's funny. I had that article come out and then I hadn't had an outbreak in a year and a half. And then a week after I got one, it's tiny. Wow. Like you can see it there. But I have, I literally had not, I was like, ah, oh, of course, one week later. Um, <laughs> but I think because I've had it for so long, I don't get bad outbreaks anymore. And um, now I know exactly what gets rid of it. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, comp seed patches. Mm-mm. They're like these little circle things. It's a clear sticker. So you put it on and it flattens it out. Hmm. So that you can't see it, it makes it less visible and also it keeps it sterile and it stops it from getting really, really bad. So I just put those on the whole time. Mm-hmm. Then I take uh, a pill. I found this thing in Germany, it's called Lyranda and it has like uh, L-lysine in it and a bunch of vitamins. So basically it just is a natural way to boost your your immunity, your immune system and um, mm-hmm. go through the cycle fast. But it's interesting, my current partner, it's not as stigmatized in Germany. Like yeah. everyone's just like, oh yeah, herpes, whatever. I, it's way, 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 way more uh, stigmatized in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I told my girlfriend, she literally was like, oh yeah, everyone has it. I might have it, but I'm not symptomatic. I don't give a shit. And that's actually pro- likely true that the the prevalence of people having the herpes, what is it called? Virus mm-hmm. is extremely prevalent, but not everybody is symptomatic. Yeah, yeah. No. Um okay, so let's get back to the timeline. You have had a couple of disappointing experiences sort of with women. At what point did you have an experience that you actually enjoyed and that you chose? Um so the girl that I hooked up with with in the car, I actually hooked up with her a second time. So I was seeing this boy, then I had this experience with this girl. And then unfortunately, I was raped in June, June 28th, 2011. I passed out on the couch and I woke up to a man raping me. Oh my God. And this was right when things had ended with the last boy I ever saw romantically. And I told him and uh, I don't know, things between him and I didn't work out. And it was right when I was in the midst of my queer awakening, this man raped me. And it just completely... I I had this experience where I had been out with a friend all night dancing and and I was very naive and 
I had this feeling where this feeling of doing drugs where I was, I really loved the party scene and I love the way that MDMA made me feel like I was floating and that I could serendip, everything was serendipitous and I could talk to people and I could meet kindred spirits. And I had this, you know, this feeling of bliss and connectedness. And uh, I remember twirling out into the summer air and talking to a really beautiful woman outside of the bar. And um, my friend had met a guy on the dance floor and he had invited us to his like wealthy parents' mansion in a very affluent part of Vancouver. And I was talking to chatting up this beautiful woman and I was like, oh, would you like to come? Everyone should come. We'll do drugs all night and we will watch the sunrise and chat and it'll be so marvelous. She's like, I don't have a phone, but I'll give you my friend's number. And um, so she gave me her friend's number. We took a cab and um, her friend texted me and he was like, what's the address? I gave it to him. And so this girl's two friends showed up and she didn't show up. Two guys Mm. showed up. And so we had a few drinks and I was very, very intoxicated at this point. And uh, I ended up just passing out on the couch. And my friend went upstairs with the guy whose house it was. And then I was just left downstairs with the guy. And I woke up in the middle of the night and his tongue was inside me. He had pulled down my stockings Mm. and his tongue was inside me. And I woke up and I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, my God, what's happening? I don't know who this person is. I don't I I I was like, you know, I was like, did I have a drunken hookup or something? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't know who this is. This is not something I wanted. And then he put his penis in me and I crunched up into a ball and I was like, no, 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 I'm tired. I'm tired. And then he came and he spooned me for like two hours. And I just laid there in horror again, just Mm. going through my memories being like, is this something I wanted? How did I get here? Eventually I jumped up and I ran upstairs and I was like, please, please to my friend. She was in bed with this guy whose house it was. And I was like, please, please, this man, he just raped me like help, help, help. So they get up, they come out and um, the guy, he's like, oh, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. He goes downstairs and he comes up smiling and then all of a sudden I see this other guy leaving and uh, he, he's like, oh, oh, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, I told him he's got to go and he gave me a bag of weed. So we're all good. And I was like, <gasps> oh, my God, I I was I was like, oh, and, and, and then suddenly I think because I had been sexually assaulted so many times, I have been sexually assaulted more than 100 times. And um this was the first time I think that I had like an adult consciousness about it because before it was just something that happened to me and I never really had the the wherewithal to really understand the ramifications of it. But this was the one that like changed everything. This was the one that broke me. This was the one that shattered everything. And so I, me and my friend were leaving and I just remember looking up the sky and I was like, now I know what it means to be a woman in the world. And that feeling of just like that floating feeling was gone. I felt the heaviest I ever had in my had ever felt in my entire life. My clothes were weighted. Everything was weighted and I was being like the earth was going to swallow me whole. It was like I had discovered gravity for the first time. And I just looked up at the sky and the sun was blinding and it was just everything was just it was just it was just this terrible feeling and we went back to my hometown and um from that point on it brought up everything that I had buried about my childhood the sexual violations I had experienced as a child it brought them all back because now I could see them with new eyes Mm -hmm. and I really really understood the severe psychological consequences 
of sexual violence and how it had shaped me as a person, something I had never questioned before. I just thought I was, there was something innately wrong with me. And I was like, no, something was done to me. Mm -hmm. And I am who I am because it's because of those experiences. So that happened. And it was right when I was in the midst of my queer awakening and, and it had me return to the babysitter. And I was like, am I gay? Because I was assaulted as a child by a girl. Mm -hmm. And um, I started asking myself all these questions. And so I hooked up with this girl the one time and it felt really disgusting because of the, because it was, we were too high and it shouldn't have happened. Uh, But there was one day um, she asked if I wanted to hook up and I left my hometown in the middle of the night and I took all these crazy buses and I went to go see her and uh, I like climbed in her window (laughs) and we, we hooked up and it was exhilarating the second time. Because uh-huh. I wanted it and I was willing to do anything to get there. And I was like, no, this is what I want. Um, so it was just a quick hookup. And I think I fingered her. But it was that was the first time I had proper sex with a woman not under the influence of drugs. And uh, it was wonderful. And then from that point on, I was not da- – I never dated men again. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you've been assaulted many, many times. Did all of that happen prior to your queer awakening or has that happened again since? That's happened again since. Um, my high school boyfriend, I only recently realized it, is was a serial rapist. Jesus. I was with him for like a year, just over a year, and he forced me to have sex with him every day over and over again when I didn't want to. Mm. Um, So the majority of it happened when I was a teenager, but I have been sexually assaulted by men and women since being raped in June, 2011. Mm. Wow. You have been through a lot. Yeah. So after you had that experience with the woman that it sounds like was pleasurable and fulfilling. Do you remember if you had an orgasm that night? Mm, I don't think so. But it was more so it was more so just like the um, bodily experience of like feeling feelings for the first time, like feeling, feeling real true attraction for the first time. And all of the endorphins and the rush, like the adrenaline rush was what was so um, exhilarating. Mm -hmm. And so what happened after that? Did you pursue dating women? So this was in, this would have been the summer of 2011, and by March 2012, I had my first girlfriend. Okay, and what was that like? Um, so I after this, I would go home every night and I would scour through plenty of fish. I had I made a fake account. I I was too scared. I just wanted to see. I just wanted to see what the dating dating profiles of girls my age looked yeah. like. And so I spent night after night and um, I was on Tumblr and I found this Tumblr called Girls Who Like Girls. Mm -hmm. And I would scroll through it every, every night, every night, every night. And then one night I came across this woman and um, she was going to the university I wanted to go to, was studying the same thing I was studying, was the same age, was really, really beautiful. And she also liked Lord of the Rings. So I sent her a message (laughs) and she wrote me back And then a month later, she was my first girlfriend. Wow. And did you have pleasure when you were being physical and sexual with her? Yes, I think we actually orgasm with our clothes on just from like, uh, just from laying on top of her. And yeah, yeah. Yay, finally something good. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. So how long were the two of you together? Four and a half years. That's a long time. And was it a good relationship? Was it a healthy relationship? No, no, not at all. Um, the first two years were really beautiful because um, I was madly, madly, madly in love with her. But we were not good for each other. And it was not a healthy relationship. But the first like two years was a lot of just bliss because I ended up getting into the university. So we studied together. We both studied political science at the University of British Columbia. And um, wow. we lived together. And it was just magical for the first time felt in control of my body and my life. And I felt like myself for the very first time. Wow. So after that relationship ended, what happened next? Then I had dated for a long time, but uh, nothing really, really worked out. Um, I had a lot of issues with substance abuse and, um, I was very, very self-destructive. Once that relationship ended, I went into a very bad depressive episode. Um, I didn't have a proper mental health diagnosis until I was 29. I got diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder. Mm. So I, I stopped doing so many drugs and I started drinking too much and I started taking antidepressants and that made me black out. So I was very, very self-destructive and I was not in a position to have a healthy relationship because I was a very unhealthy person. Mm -hmm. But then in December 2019, I quit drinking. And since then, I have found the love of my life. Wow. Um, okay, I definitely want to hear all about that. I also want to ask, having gotten the BPD diagnosis... Does that help you look back at your past behavior and see any patterns in relationships and in sexuality? 100%. Um, actually, after I was raped, um, I was at UBC and um, I had a really hard time in my last university because I was severely depressed. And this was the first time I had actually um, like uh, admitted to myself that I had um, mental illness uh, this was 2013, 2014, because the, the rape, it took me like two years for everything to really, really hit me. And I was in my last year and I was taking five classes a semester and I was going to fail. And I was trying, I had, I had, um, I went, I went to the, um, it's, at the time it was called Access and Diversity. And I wanted to be able to write my final exams in a quiet room. And I wanted some extensions on papers because I was having a really hard time. And I, I was already taking an extra year to do my degree. I didn't want to do it in six years. I wanted to finish in five. So they gave me an interim accommodation in the summertime. And I got straight A's. I did so well. It was the best grades I ever got in my life. And then the fall came and they said that I needed a diagnosis in order to be able to continue getting accommodation. So I went to the university's counselor I told her all my trauma and she was like, well, honestly, it takes a really long time for us to give a diagnosis. By the time we do it, it's going to be too late. So because I because I was already halfway into my second last sem semester and she was like, unfortunately, it's just going to take too long. 
And then they sent me to a doctor and the doctor told me I probably didn't have mental illness. It was because I was vegetarian and my B12 and iron oh my God. Was, was too low. <laughs> and I, But it just felt like I was going to all of, I was, go, I was going to all everywhere on campus and having doors slammed in my face and it was re-traumatizing me. And I ended up actually going to um, one of my professors because I was like, okay, the last thing I can do is I'm just going to have to ask the professors. I'm not going to be able to have this governing body, you know, mm-hmm. mediate. So I went to this one professor and she was um, like, uh, she had previously been the Dean of Sociology, a lesbian professor. And I remember, I will never forget, I showed up at her office hours. She was late. She showed up with another student. They had Starbucks in their hand. I already felt disrespected because she didn't take my time seriously. I was shaking because, because I, 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 well, I felt like I was going to have to get down on my knees and beg for help. So finally, we go into her room. I didn't want to disclose that I had been raped. And she pushed and she pushed and she pushed and she pushed. And finally, I had burst into tears and told her. And she told me that as a, as a, fourth year student that I should know how to mitigate my mental illness. And I was like, (gasps) you just prodded me into disclosing that I was raped. And then you literally, you just, you literally made me feel like I'm making up being raped so that I can get, so that, so that I can get a small advantage as though I'm lying to, Mm -hmm. because I'm a shitty student. That, that was really, really um, horrific. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment, and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no-obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching coaching. After I graduated university, my ex-girlfriend and I, we went to South America for six and a half months. I came back to Vancouver. 
I worked at the cafe for about 10 months and then I moved to Toronto. She actually broke my heart. We were supposed to move to Toronto together and she broke my heart and she moved to New York City without me. Mm. We did six months long distance that we broke up over the phone and we never oh. spoke again. And so I was alone in Toronto. So I, I was severely depressed. I didn't know anybody. I had never, I was, Toronto is a five hour flight from Vancouver. It is a 45 hour drive. Mm. I was unwell. And so I tried to get help. I went um, to something called the Center for Addictions and Mental Health. Again, told my entire life story to a counselor. And uh, she diagnosed me with major depressive disorder and PTSD. And then I was given antidepressants. So I was on antidepressants for three years. And then I started drinking. And the, co the combination of alcohol and antidepressants was lethal. So I... Um, I went full rock bottom. If there was a, uh, there's a basement, there's a, there's a, you know, an elevator shaft under rock bottom. That's where I went. Um, I was the most self-destructive I've ever been in my life. Um, I gained 80 pounds in six months. I was fired from every job. I lost every friend I made. It was complete catastrophe. I was complete shell of myself. I was, I was suicidal. I was cutting myself. It was really, 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 really bad. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, because I didn't have the proper mental health diagnosis. And I knew that, I knew that I was like, this is not just depression. Like there's something worse going on here. This is like, those words just didn't fully encapsulate how I felt inside. And so it took actually until March, 2020, I was suicidal and I was, too, always too scared. I was like, I'm not sick enough to go to the emergency room. But finally, I decided to go. So again, had another, you know, told my life story to the psychiatrist. And he gave me a pamphlet. And he was like, Oh, it sounds like you might have borderline personality disorder. So I took it home. And uh, I read it. And I was like, Oh, my God, this is me, the chronic feelings of emptiness, the unstable relationships, the uh, substance abuse, all of these things were me. And so that was, uh, and it was funny because a few years prior, my sister was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but oh, no kidding. I actually scoffed at it because I thought it, I thought it was multiple personality disorders. So I was like, that's ridiculous. She doesn't have multiple personalities. I thought it was like an over medicalized mm -hmm. jargon and not unnecessary. I didn't understand what it was, but then it ended up being a completely life-changing, eye-opening thing. And actually a couple months before that, I had quit drinking. So these two things completely changed my life. Wow. And at some point in here, did you move to Germany? Yes. Um, so I moved to Germany in July, 2020. So the pandemic came and uh, I lost my job. I had no reason to be there anymore. And I was either move back home or move somewhere else. And I knew that if I moved back to Vancouver, it would be regressive for me. I, I didn't want to fall back into my old life. I needed something different. And um, my friend had a very similar experience. She was miserable. Um, we had nothing going for us. And also like uh, Toronto, like Canada is very, very expensive. Everything that was good about my life there had crumbled before my eyes. I had no prospects. I was working in journalism and I kept, I got laid off twice. 
the city is so expensive. Like everything that was good about the city got destroyed by COVID. And I was like, why am I paying a rent premium to live in a city that is defined by uh, fast food and condo towers and they're ripping everything down? I was like, I, I am so unhappy. So my friend and I had gone on a date in February 2019 and um, we had instant chemistry, but she realized that she's straight, but we we stayed in contact and we just followed each other on Instagram and um, we had hung out like right before the pandemic happened. We were starting to hang out more frequently and then the pandemic happened and we were both stuck inside and um, we were like, I had just lost my job and we were like, well, we can't do anything. It's, it was lockdown. It was the very first lockdown. And so I was like, okay, I think this is the time when it was like controversial to see somebody from another household. Yeah. But we, we would just meet, meet up and we would just go on these like four or five hour walks through the empty city streets. And during this time, we, we had, su- we just had such a good time. Like I, I, I just wanted a hug. I needed connect human connection. And this really gave it to me during this uncertain time. And Previously, we had gone for dinner and talked about how we would love to uh, move to Europe one day, but it didn't seem like the right time. But then fast forward six months later, we were like, why don't we just do it? Like, what do, what am I what am I doing with my life? I'm miserable. Why the world seems to be ending. Why don't we just go? So we planned and uh, th- three months later, we sold everything and we the second borders opened. We bought plane tickets before borders opened. This was wow. like when they first shut down borders. Yeah, we were on a plane and we went to Portugal for a month to just relax on the beach. And then we arrived in Germany in August 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the greatest decision I ever made because I am the happiest I've ever been. Wow. And so there's more to that story of you and your friend who you moved with, right? So we are soulmates because when we are together, the universe makes magic happen. Um, Mm. and, um, we have a very deep connection and, um, uh, we've lived together ever since we, we moved to Europe and, um, yeah, we randomly decided to get married February, 2021. And uh, it was really, really beautiful, but we were also, uh, very, very vulnerable and clinging to each other for dear life. And, um, we didn't realize how much the concept of marriage would be suffocating for our relationship. Hmm. So can I just interrupt for a second and uh, clarify that this is a non-sexual relationship, yeah. but you decided to get married because you are soulmates. Yes. Yes. And Platonic, um, non-sexual, non-romantic soulmates. Yes. And, um, I was actually dating a German and it was actually the most abusive relationship I had ever been in in my life. Mm. It was actually somebody who I had started talking to when I was still in Toronto. And um, we spoke online for four months until I moved. And the first night I was in Berlin, um, they came to my Airbnb and I dated them for six months and and they had completely misrepresented who they were. And um, it ended up being a horror show. And uh, my friend was also dating somebody and it also ended up ending terribly. When we got here, it was a seven month lockdown and we were just clinging to each other for dear life. And I was questioning if this was all worth it, if I had made the right decision. And um, then there was one day where she was sobbing um, 
And I came in and I embraced her and gave her a hug and she never let anyone see her cry like that before. And Mm -hmm. she had never been able to envision a future with anyone else other than me. Um, So she proposed to me and I said, yes. And we had a a ceremony and we thought about legalizing it, but uh, at the time it wasn't possible because everything was closed because it was locked down. But then we ended up realizing that legalizing it wouldn't do anything for us. It's better to marry a European citizen so you can stay in the country because um, <laughs> it, it wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't have done anything really for us um, long term. Um, so we didn't end up legalizing it. Um, and then we, uh, we were platonically married uh, until like December of that year. But we ended up finding that the construct of marriage ended up being extremely suffocating and we couldn't exist as individuals and ended up causing more harm than good. In what ways? You know, we were were working really, really hard to have our individuality again in our own lives. And it just ended up, um, I couldn't go anywhere without somebody asking me where Chidera was. Mm -hmm. Where's your friend? Where's your friend? It just ended up being suffocating. It was beautiful. and, And the commitment to each other, the spirit of what we did remains to this day but the the construct of marriage was just was just suffocating because people couldn't see us as individuals we always had to be a unit and something for bpd and she's bipolar you know and this is one of the things that we bond over but it's really important for each of us to have a strong sense of identity and individualism mm-hmm. and for me personally a component of bpd is um you you never have a sense of self so we really, really, really struggled with that and eventually decided that it was best for our relationship to just ditch the term mm-hmm. marriage. I, there is something about this story, even though the two of you decided to move out of the construct of quote unquote marriage, there's something about this story that speaks to me so deeply of how relationships can look any way that we want them to, as long as we're willing to do the work of figuring out what we want. And for you, that includes being really committed to your platonic soulmate. Mm -hmm. I just I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah, it's like we did a another um, pair of women uh, went viral on TikTok. So the topic came back in the news again, and we were interviewed by Refinery29 a few months ago. We did a, did a lo- quite a lot of media. We were in the Daily Mail, NBC News, oh, wow. all on, on a morning show. Um, and uh, it got to the point where we, we it was authentic, and, and, and we meant everything we said. And then, um, you know, when we decided to change our minds, there was like this pressure to be this image of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also was something that was really, really difficult because people project things onto you because people thought that we were doing it for attention, that mm-hmm. it was fake, that we were doing it for attention. It was completely authentic. But I also think the beauty of life is that you're, you're allowed to change and grow and you're allowed to change your mind. And that's, and that's yes. completely acceptable. But if you, if you stray from the path, people lose their minds. So, <laughs> You know, when when I it was kind of nice because we did this Refinery29 interview and then I just screenshotted the part where we talked about um, why we no longer decided to be platonically married. And I just put it on my Instagram story so I didn't have to explain. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is nice. I can explain through a publication. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it was a it was a beautiful experience. Um, 
we also realized that we would make terrible co-parents. And um, so there was a lot of things that were like, okay, you know, like it's, we're always going to be soulmates and we're, our lives are always going to be intertwined. But, you know, long term, we actually, there's actually a lot of differences and um, we want different things for our futures. So, so we change our mind. Yeah, I love it. And you are now in a relationship with another woman. So tell me about that. I would have never imagined I would meet this person because I, I, I didn't know such a person could exist because I'm only, I'm only used to abusive relationships, mm-hmm. um, emotionally, you know, relationships that dysregulate my nervous system. And uh, I went on this date. Um, I was going on a le- dates with a lot of Germans and Germans are very, very passive. And so it felt very much like I'd have to be like on the 27th date, I'd be like, may I lay a kiss upon your lips, my fair lady. <laughs> so I had to, I had to make all the moves and it was super awkward. Um, but what I loved about her is that she made the first move. She was very direct about what she wanted. And, and I, I found that a lot of times in, um, in dating, for some reason, people always want me to be daddy. I don't know what it is. I don't know. Maybe I'm just <laughs> emanating daddy energy, but I always get put into a role and I hate it because, you know, I, I like, um, you know, I like to be both. And I was like, I just want to be baby sometimes. And so, yeah. and I went on lots of dates and, um, I, I'm always very forthright that I'm monogamous and that I'm sober. And so some people would be like, Oh, that's boring that you don't drink or we would go on a date and then they would have a secret boyfriend. And I'm like, you know, there's, there's no problem if you're in an open relationship or you're polyamorous and you have a boyfriend, whatever, I don't care. But I was explicit that I am monogamous and that's not what I'm looking for. So it was just dating is a nightmare. And then, um, I went on a date with her and I, I actually, we met on the, her app. Like I just randomly opened the app and, um, I was like, Oh, she's cute. And then, uh, I was like, ah, oh, but she's quite a bit younger. I was 30 at the time and it said she's 24. And I was like, Oh, I usually date someone who's like a year younger, a year older. Um, but I was like, she's cute, whatever. I'll go on a date and, um, ended up being magnificent. And, uh, we started seeing each other and, um, Two months later, she was my girlfriend, and we were saying "I love you," and um, hmm. I'm pretty sure we're going to get married very wow. soon. And how long have you been together? We have been dating for a year, and we have been official since June. It's just she's just the most wonderful person in the world. Uh, just the first person that has um, doesn't care that I have herpes, doesn't care that I have BPD doesn't have a history of trauma herself but doesn't Mm. care that I'm open Mm -hmm. about the fact that that I do have a mental illness and I do have trauma that's huge is the first person that doesn't trigger me and actually these days I'm so psychologically well that I don't even have many symptoms of BPD anymore I don't spiral I don't have anxious spirals because this person calms and grounds me and uh, makes me feel safe it's the first secure attachment I've ever experienced in my life Wow. And is the sex good? Incredible. Oh, good. (laughs) That's fantastic. And now it's time for the lowdown. The things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you have sex during your period? Yes. Does your partner also get a period? Yes. And so do you also have sex when they are on their period? 
Yes. Okay. So four weeks a month, you're all good to go. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. What's the approximate number of sex partners you've had? Mm, Probably 50. Have you ever had sex with someone of a different racial identity than your own? Yes. What's your favorite sex toy? The Satisfier. Oh, okay. I will put a link in the description for that. (laughs) What's your favorite sex position? Mm, Missionary. Do you prefer to initiate or for your partner to initiate in the bedroom? I like a mixture. Are you generally more active or more passive during lovemaking? Active. Do you prefer clit stimulation or penetration? Clit. Do you enjoy G-spot stimulation? Yes. Do you enjoy having your breasts played with? Yes. Do you think it's generally easy or challenging for you to orgasm? Easy. What's your favorite thing to do to your partner during sexual play? Uh, Penetration. Using what? My fingers. Okay. Do you ever use a strap-on? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you enjoy that? That was a nod of the head. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What kind of touch do you enjoy receiving most? My favorite thing is having my back rubbed. Oh, nice. (laughs) Okay. What are your hard red lines, the things you absolutely don't want to do? Anal. Um, I think that's pretty much it. Okay. Um, how do you feel about porn? Love it. And do you actively use it with your partner? Yes. What's your ideal frequency of sex? At least three times a week. Do you have hair down there or are you bare? Uh, different seasons, different moods. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Do you enjoy giving oral sex? Yes. Do you enjoy receiving oral sex? Yes. Do you ever worry about your smell or taste? No. How do you feel about ass play? I know you said no to anal, but what about ass play that's not fully penetrative? A little bit is okay. Yeah. What do you consider the quote unquote kinkiest thing that you enjoy, given that every person's scale of kink is totally different? Mm, Probably like a little bit of roughness, Mm -hmm. like choking, hair pulling, um, scratching. Okay. Um, Do you enjoy dirty talk during sexual encounters? Yes. Have you ever felt a sexual urge that confused you? Yes. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. (laughs) I enjoy watching anal porn, but it's not something that I want. Oh, that's interesting. There are actually a lot of people who like watching types of porn that they don't want to experience themselves. That's pretty common. Yeah. What is your favorite part of your body? My ass. What's your least favorite part of your body? Probably my belly. What is something about your current sex life that isn't quite as satisfying as you'd like it to be? Um, Sometimes if I get stressed, I get a low libido and I would like for that to change. 
Is there a question or concern that you have about sex in general or your sex life in particular? Probably what I just said, um, that sometimes if I'm stressed or I'm depressed, then I feel asexual. I have no sexual drive, whatever. And sometimes I feel bad for being that way. But I also just have to understand that that's uh, because of sexual violence and I have to feel at home in my body in order to have sex. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you recognize, even though it's a challenge for you, I'm glad that you recognize also the the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct yourself on now? That I am allowed to experience pleasure and that I don't exist for the pleasure of boys and men. Yeah. And that you are not inherently broken and victimized. Yeah. 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 Deidre, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you so much for having it with me. Thank you. My pleasure. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you want to let people know how and where to find you? Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Deidre L. Olson or on Instagram at Deidre Olson. And you can find me at DeidreOlson.com. Great. And I'll put links in the show notes to the articles that we've mentioned. And um, so people can read those because they are really fantastic. Thank you. That's it for today. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As a sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Full show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. And you can follow me at goodgirlstalk on the socials for more sex positive content. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. While listening to this show is free, producing it is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I'll gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Good girls talk about sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>